Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Hi everyone and welcome back to BFR Radio. Thanks for tuning in. A couple of notes before I get into today's article. Firstly, I've really been trying to get as much information about how to practically apply BFR in your own training or rehab setting. I hope you've been enjoying it. If you do have any questions or any information you want me to put something together with, shoot me through your ideas. I really do appreciate the interaction with uh, you all out there. So get your ideas to me and I'll put it together in a nice visual format. I've also had a few customers comment on the pump. Now, you've got to remember that this is actually medical grade equipment. So if you're rough with it or if you drop it, it's going to stop working effectively. Uh, I've had mine and for a couple of years now, I've actually been prototyping, testing it for quite some time and I've had no issues. So if you're going to drop it, it's going to become inaccurate. So please be very careful with the pump. And also with the tubing as well. Remember, as per the instructional videos, you only actually have to gently put it into the each end and you'll have no issues. The reason why I didn't go with a valve, a male and female valve, is, is that that obviously just increases the cost of the unit. So I really try to keep it practical and affordable for everyone out there. So just be, please be mindful of how you're using that. But once again, if any issues do come up with your product, please get back to me through my website and I will try and get it fixed for you as soon as possible. On to today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about an article which is called The Effect of One Week of Repeated Ischemic Leg Preconditioning on Simulated Kieran Cycling Performance. I've actually spoken about ischemic preconditioning previously and I think an easy way to think about it is think about it as a passive potentiation, something you do prior to a warm-up or an activity. And from academic point of view, there's been a few studies out there which have shown performance improvements and also anecdotally with some clients and athletes that I coach, they'll use it prior to their warm-up and just report that they get into their warm-up a lot easier, they feel potentiated and their performance is actually better. Now, going on to the article, when we think about the concept of ischemia preconditioning, this is where they have repetitions of using pressure to induce brief ischemia, that's hypoxia or reduced oxygen, followed by reperfusion, or in other words, reoxygenation. This technique has been shown to increase exercise capacity through alterations in oxygen delivery, blood flow, and fatigue attenuation, and also has been shown to result in improved peak oxygen uptake and peak and main power during early stages of repeat sprint cycling. Everyone loves to know mechanisms as to why it works and I really try to explain it. And sometimes science may miss the real reason or the real mechanism as to why something works. And in my industry, although I try to put a lot of science behind what I do, sometimes if something works, I think it's worth keep exploring. And also something to remember with BFR, there's responders and non-responders. And that's really important to understand with BFR or any type of training stimulus. So with respect to ischemic preconditioning, oxidative stress is an integral component of this ischemic and reperfusion cycle, while vasodilation improves tissue oxygenation and the inflammatory system modulation is regulated through a single or repetitive ischemic treatment. Now there's lots of different type of markers that we can look at here and different metabolites. So 
I think what's important is not to get bogged down in this. There's things such as oxidative stress, immune system activation, and also other markers such as nitric oxide and catecholamine synthesis. And once again, these biomarkers provide insight into mechanisms as to why it works. Markers get activated during a certain activity. I think that's a positive thing. However, I think putting our pragmatic coach's hat on, we just need to look at A, do the athletes like it? And B, does it produce a performance benefit or perhaps the other way around? With respect to this paper, the purpose was to assess an induced physiological change and simulated Kieran's cycling performance following seven days of ischemic preconditioning. And they also wanted to see if it could determine if any aerobic capacity changes remained after an additional seven days. With respect to the participants, they used 18 recreational active sports science students, 13 men, five women, aged between 18 and 30 years of age. Now, as we know, ideally we love elite athletes, but in most studies, this is impossible. So therefore, we need to look within the results. The experimental design was a randomized sham controlled design, which was used to assess the impact of seven consecutive days of ischemic preconditioning sessions on urinary markers of physiological stress, those markers which I told you not to stress about, and simulated competition cycling performance measured through repeated anaerobic exercise performances. With respect to testing, baseline aerobic, VO2 max, and anaerobic capacity, so that's a 30-second Wingate test, that's on a cycle ergometer, cycle as hard and as fast as you can for 30 seconds, they were performed 48 and 24 hours respectively prior to commencing the ischemic preconditioning protocol. Now, the participants were pair-matched by the investigator, but they were then randomly allocated into a treatment or a sham group. Now, the sham group was, they still had cuffs on, but it was a really low pressure. Participants were told that it was an ischemic preconditioning study using blood pressure cuffs. However, they were not told what pressure would be expected to be an effective treatment. Furthermore, the participants were unaware as to which treatment group they were in. The prescribed sessions were performed once a day over the following seven days. After completing all the seven ischemic preconditioning treatments, the participants performed a simulated Kieran test, which is four by 30 second Wingate tests, 24 hours post, and a second and third VO2 max at 48 hours, and then a following seven days post. So here, they've had their seven day treatment of ischemic preconditioning, and then at 24 hours post, they did four 30 second Wingate tests, so the simulated Kieran test, at 48 hours, they did a VO2 max, and then the following seven days, they've done another VO2 max. As I mentioned earlier, the participants performed their testing, their VO2 max, and their initial 30-second Wingate test. It's also important to note here, the participants completed a visual analog scale questionnaire, or VAS questionnaire, of a scale of zero to 10, which looked at fatigue pre, post, and 30 minutes post, where zero represented no fatigue, while a 10 represented greatest fatigue possible. There was no familiarization testing done here, but they did indicate that they were sports science students. In the study here, they thought that, that using the full Wingate test replicated the time scale and simulated a current competition quite well. Also, blood lactate was collected before, immediately post, and five minutes post each Wingate, while urine was collected pre, immediately post, and 30 minutes post each Wingate test, as well as 24 hours post. Peak power, average power, and fatigue index percentage was calculated for each Wingate test, while participants were also completed that same 
VAS questionnaire pre-post and 30 minutes post. So really trying to get an accurate marker from a subjective, but also an objective viewpoint. Now revisiting the repeated ischemic preconditioning protocol, it was actually really simple. The cuff was 20 centimeters wide, where participants received four five-minute episodes of ischemic preconditioning at 220 millimeters of mercury, or the other group was a sham treatment at 20 millimeters of mercury, interspersed with five minutes of reperfusion per episode. And that actually alternated between each thigh. During the seven-day ischemic preconditioning protocol, they're allowed to continue their normal activity. However, this was just done passive. So it's really important to notice here, and that's the advantage of using ischemic preconditioning. It is all passive type treatment. Now onto the most important thing, the results here. The follow-up testing showed that in anaerobic measures, the comparison between the pre-ischemic preconditioning and the best 30-second wing gait of the Kieran simulation revealed peak power increased 11%, average power 4.3, and fatigue index 12.1 in the ischemic preconditioning and these were all significant changes while no changes were observed for the sham group for any of these parameters. Both groups reported a greater perceived feeling of fatigue 30 minutes following the first Kieran Wingate test despite no significant changes in lactate measures for either group between the pre-ischemic preconditioning and the first Kieran Wingate test. With respect to aerobic measures, maximal aerobic capacity increased 9.5% 48 hours post ischemic preconditioning treatment, with a further increase to 12.8% above baseline after initial seven days. That's quite good, isn't it? You have an increase in aerobic capacity by doing nothing. These are all significant changes. The ischemic preconditioning treatment also showed a small effect on increasing maximal aerobic power which peaked 18.5% above baseline 48 hours post-intervention before regressing slightly back to 16.1% seven days later. No significant differences were found for maximal heart rate or respiratory exchange ratio values in either group during any of the VO2 max tests. With respect to the Kieran event simulation, so that's four 30-second efforts on the Wingate so-called agometer, the ischemic preconditioning group significantly increased their peak power by 8.7% in tests 3 and 4, while there were no significant changes in the sham or control group. Average power had a significant but trivial increase for wing gates 3 and 4 when compared with wing gate 1 and 2, so that's 3.2 to 3.4% respectively. However, there was no changes observed for the sham group. Once again here, although slight increases in performance, there's something going on here with ischemic preconditioning. The ratings of perceived fatigue showed similar within group trends as both groups experienced increased levels of fatigue at specific time points. The sham group had higher blood lactate concentrations prior to test two, which is indicative of another study out there which seemed to indicate there was perhaps some buffering mechanism going on with ischemic preconditioning. As we can see here, these results suggest that seven consecutive days of ischemic preconditioning may provide an ergogenic benefit. However, the authors do go on to say that the optimal conditioning required to elicit a performance or physiological adaptation is yet to be investigated. Now, of course, that's to be obvious, but when you actually look at some other studies here, there was some authors that noted that a single application of leg ischemia improves maximal oxygen consumption by 3% and aerobic power output by 1.6%. When you compare it to this study here, the within treatment group improvement of 12.8% in maximal oxygen consumption and an 18.5% enhancement in aerobic power, you would actually say that this effect of ischemic preconditioning is improved over a longer period of time. 
With respect to the biochemical markers, it's well established that ischemic preconditioning results in cellular and genetic adaptations providing protection against hypoxic stress. In an exercise-related context where significant elevations in oxidative stress accompany very form of activities, the adaptation potentially developed through repeated ischemic preconditioning may have increased the cell's ability to modulate the physiological stress response and more efficiently improve exercise capacity and performance through oxidative stress-dependent mechanisms. Now, some of the markers here, so neopatrin and biopatrin, these were shown to increase over the week while undertaking the ischemic preconditioning treatment, which indicates that while oxidative stress was increased, there was minimal immune system activation or nitric oxide or catecholamine synthesis. The repeated ischemic preconditioning resulted in lower levels of indirect markers of oxidative stress during the Kieran simulation. This may explain the ability to maintain a higher peak power and reduce the decrement in average power over successive sprints. Increased reactive oxygen species, such as those produced during high-intensity exercise, has been shown to modulate skeletal muscle force production, while the immune system activation is known to detrimentally affect the same mechanical properties. It could be postulated that the smaller perturbations in inflammation and oxidative stress experienced in the ischemic preconditioning group had a smaller impact on the contractile properties of the skeletal muscle, allowing for more sustainable and repeatable anaerobic performance. Repeated ischemic preconditioning also resulted in a significant elevation in urinary total biopatrin. This suggests that an increased vasodilation and sympathetic activation as previously noted. This may increase oxygen delivery and saturation. The repeated ischemic preconditioning also resulted in a significant elevation in urinary total biopatrin suggesting increased vasodilation and sympathetic activation. This may increase oxygen delivery and saturation within the exercise and skeletal muscle tissue for enhancement of contraction function, which was also observed between successive bouts. The likely increase in vasodilation and subsequent oxygen delivery in conjunction with previously reported increased blood vessel density in response to repeated IPC hypoxic conditions may provide an explanation for the improvement in aerobic capacity. What this is actually saying that through these markers, it's actually indicating that you are able to increase the oxygen delivery and saturation within the skeletal muscle. And this in turn enhances the contractile function of the muscle. And I guess that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to improve the contractile function of the body. And in this case, the muscles. Therefore, in summary, the results here show that seven days of passive ischemic preconditioning, five minutes on, five minutes off, substantially improved aerobic and anaerobic capacity and it also showed improvement in certain anaerobic capacity parameters over four successive anaerobic bouts those are four 30 second wing gate tests the markers that were measured here also indicated that there was an improvement in oxygen delivery which perhaps explained the results seen in the wing gate test so when you sit down and just reflect on this paper I kind of think about this as money for jam. Are we doing the one percenters or the two percenters? Are we doing something that we should be doing that has no physical cost to us? It's like sleeping well and eating well. It's been shown IPC, ischemic preconditioning or just BFR, has been shown to have very few side effects, only in extreme or poorly controlled cases. Therefore, why not do it? Why not try it? Are you one of the responders? Because if you're able to sit down and do something that's as easy as this, why aren't we doing it? It kind of makes sense. 
with respect to the protocols I use, I do something a little bit more realistic. So I go two minutes on, one minute off and do that three times. And I found that the response from the athletes are very favorable and positive. Would it be better if it's five on, five off? Well, only time would tell and a detailed study. However, I think we live in a practical world. If you think about a five minute on and off protocol three times, that's about 25, 30 minutes versus two on, one off, three times through, that's about eight minutes. So I just say, well, it's you just your Instagram or your social media time. They can just flick through that while they're getting their bag ready. Now, also one thing I've noticed in athletes is, is that they require more intensity. And so if they feel that they're a non-responder doing it passively, why not give them a small active type circuit? And that could be something as simple as a little mini band routine, single leg squats, create something that would have benefit to them anyway and that would only be amplified using BFR. Now it wouldn't be two minutes on, one minute off, but you create a circuit and you'd reperfuse for a minute off, reinflate three times through. And once again, as people have indicated when they use BFR, that it feels great. Everything feels active. You know, if they've got any joint pain, that decreases the muscles are nice and warm and supportive. I think this is a great application of BFR and I urge you, if you do have a set of cuffs, try it out. The worst thing that could happen is that, well, you perform better and wouldn't that be a great thing? I hope you've enjoyed that and now we're going to go on to how you do BFR. Today on How You Do BFR, I've got elite cyclist Jordan Kirby. I've actually known Jordan for quite some time over a large period of years through the Queensland Academy of Sport. Now, he's got a really interesting story. I'm going to really let him tell it because I think it's fascinating. But the big things here is, is that he's been an elite cyclist for many years on both the road and the track, world champion in 2017 in the 4,000 meter individual pursuit. To be able to get a caliber athlete like this on the podcast, firstly, I'm honored, but also just to know Jordan from a personal level, I think as he'll come across in the podcast, he's just a, a great bloke. So what I want you to do, Jordan, is just thanks for coming on to the uh, podcast. Just tell a little bit about yourself, about your journey as a cyclist, and then we'll get into the BFR component. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, we've had a relationship where we do see, we have seen each other in and out a lot for like, yeah, probably nearly 10 years now. So it's always it's always good to catch up. So my background story, I've been probably taking cycling seriously for about 15 years now. I first was a junior, I was on the track and on the road competing at state titles, national championships, all that kind of stuff. Went to the junior world championships on the track and won a few world titles there. Went into a senior track program down in Adelaide when I was young and it was coming up to the, I think it was London Olympics at that time and I, I knew that there was a good eight guys definitely a step ahead of me so I sort of stepped back from the track and went and started a, a road career and I raced I raced all over I raced in Asia uh, the US I did a few years in Europe and got some really good racing in and then sort of 2016 time when I saw the Rio Olympics on, on TV in an apartment in, in Girona I thought oh I wouldn't mind getting back on, on the track bike. So I ended up ditching the road and started looking at the track again with the ultimate goal being trying to get to the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Did a lot of hard work in Brisbane. They built the new velodrome. I went to a national championship, managed to win that. They sent me to the world championship. I managed to win that, which was a, which was a big surprise. And from there, the AIS took me back into the track cycling program down in Adelaide. 
that was 2017. And then 2018, uh, we went to the Commonwealth Games and ended up getting gold medal and teams to shoot there. So yeah, bit of a history about me on the bike and outside of riding I have a good interest in the, the sort of science stuff though I'm not the smartest guy getting around but that's probably what led us to talking and discussing about BFR. Yeah and before we get into the BFR side of it I'm really interesting because you do have an interest in the science and you've also got your own cycling coaching business and you're also studying a Bachelor of Exercise and Sport through Mass University. That keeps you unbelievably busy but sometimes when you're busy you get stuff done. And just tell me about how your transition into starting to do your coaching has come into the picture. Yeah, for sure. So as a professional bike rider, you just ride your bike and you spend a lot of time sitting around. But also, it's a big risk job. It's like any elite sport. You can injure yourself and the career's over. Then what do you do? Well, I like to somewhat fall on my feet and I... I've always had an interest in the coaching side of things and I think when I retire, I would love to move into a high-performance coaching role for track cycling ideally. So in 2016, I slowly started up this commercial coaching business and yeah, I work with about 20 athletes and it's a lot, it's a lot of work because I'm in touch with most of them every single day. Yeah, so I, I work with a, a range of athletes. I have masters riders, uh, male and female who want to do grand fondos and little tours in, in the Alps in France and Italy and all that kind of stuff. And I have some young juniors who are really trying to make a, a crack in the sport. So it offers a nice blend. And I think I've learned so much in just three years of coaching about people and how important the relationship side of it really is. So I have a, a bit of scientific knowledge, but not a great deal. Now, the thing I'm best at probably with coaching is the application of what, what I've learned through, throughout my career and tying into starting studying at Massey University. I'm trying to add sort of the theoretical and science stuff behind it as well to sort of make a complete picture, I guess. And do you see your evolution of, of an athlete understanding the science now and coaching yourself that if perhaps you think if I had my time again, you know, applying some, some different principles, things could have been another level. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have that beautiful thing called uh, hindsight. And I think I wasted a lot of hours when I was younger just doing trash miles and trash volume and not enough high intensity intervals and not enough time in the gym and all that kind of stuff. And uh, riding the bike can actually make you quite decrepit if you do 30 hours of it a week. So I think, yeah, if I had my time again, I definitely would have done things differently in terms of doing high intensity intervals and more gym work, so to speak. But yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I would have made yeah. some, some big changes. And do you think some of that was just the coaching at the time or the culture that you were in? You know, like some young athletes in some sports, which may not be gym orientated, might be like, oh, I don't need to do gym. Do you think that's sometimes an evolution of just the culture of the coaches and people you're with at the time? Yeah, 100%. And it's an evolution of knowledge as well, particularly in road cycling. There's always historically been negativity towards him because, oh, it's going to make me heavy. But if you went to any top professional world to a team nowadays, every top rider in the world is, is doing gym stuff. It's just the norm because, well, hang on, no, you don't necessarily have to get huge, but you can get stronger and more functional and have better power delivery. So yeah, 100%, I think... It's an evolution of knowledge in the road cycling and with the track cycling as well. There's always been a gym component, but now there's a huge 
gym component because the times in the events are getting quicker, which means they're relying less on the aerobic system and more on the anaerobic system. So yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. I'm in the gym three times a week now for an hour and a half to two hours at a time. And if you asked me, would I be doing that five years ago? I would have laughed at you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you obviously would have seen a lot in your time. When you think about some of the best models or teams that are out there, what springs to mind and what are they doing or what were they doing that, you know, at the time you might've went, that's a bit weird, but now you sit back and reflect and go, actually, they're ahead of their time. Yeah. I think one that's probably pretty pretty obvious in the cycling world would be the Team Sky Chris Froome scenario. They in road cycling you'd kind of laugh at someone that sat on the sat on a trainer and warmed up for a five hour road race uh, and and got on the on the bike on the trainer after a five hour race and spun their legs to cool down as well. But now every world to a team is is doing it because of the scientific benefits. So I think how everything is developed in cycling is through science and getting these brilliant scientific minds into these teams and they they're changing the game within the teams and as a result cycling is getting faster and faster both on the road and track yeah for sure and it's really fascinating when you get to hear those insights and in my world i do a lot in track and field and the sprinters they'll do a really long warm-up and then after they finish racing they'll actually do a warm down and you know same kind of concept there and sometimes for me it's like oh there's simplicity within the complexity of programs i think sometimes that's the beauty of it as well foundations are important yeah, for sure. And so talking about doing something a little bit different, you know, I, I know you use blood flow restriction and I thought I'd take this opportunity to get you on the article that I've linked this podcast with where I've just reviewed the role of using BFR as uh, pre-ischemic conditioning passively prior to 30-second Wingate tests. So I thought it was really relevant to get you onto this podcast. I've been speaking about cycling and the role that BFR can play in improving peak power and average power performance and repeat sprints. To get you on board and really just to tell your story about how you got into BFR, how you used it. And I do know you've got a couple of cool little stories on other athletes that you've given it to to use. Yeah, uh, I might just uh, let it rip then. So I first come across BFR down in Adelaide in the, in the high performance program when uh, these little cuffs got whipped out. I'm like, what are they for? And they said, you're putting them on your legs today and you're going to lift weights with them. And I was like, oh, okay. And I said, I said to the strength and condition coach, I said, this is interesting, but have you got anything I can read to sort of substantiate this? And she gave me a couple of journals to read and I found it quite fascinating. So I was pretty well hooked straight away. I found in terms of hypertrophy, it was really beneficial because what with what we do, there's still such a big aerobic component to training. You're out there still doing three to five hour rides and you know you want to avoid going catabolic because you're trying to put on size at the same time. So it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult balance. So I found that the use of BFR down there helped me maintain weight and as a result, put out high amounts of power. Now, since then, I've been back in Brisbane a lot training by myself and I actually got my hands on a set of cuffs from you because I, I remember I was at the QIS gym one day and I forget how it came up. I think I might have been asking my coach, Kelly, if, if she had any and I always had a chat to you and I mentioned it and you're like, BFR, I can get you some cuffs. <laughs> <laughs> so, got some cuffs off you and that was... Um, well and truly over a year ago now, maybe even eight, 18 months ago or something like that. But I've been using them two or three times a week ever since. And I use them in a number of different ways. The predominant way in which I use them is 
within every gym session, I put the cuffs on for my last superset at a time when I'm feeling a bit tired. I've been trying to lift some heavy things and I still want to get a really good stimulus out for the last set. So I use them in the last superset of every of every session and exercises they can range from just lunges, squats, even some pull-off press or hanging running hip flexors, even the occasional gambetta leg circuit, which I don't recommend people doing with the cuffs on because I think I cried. <laughs> it was quite painful. So, yep, and I also find them really useful for travel when you can't, when you can't find a gym. I go to some bizarre places for track cycling and there's never the equipment you need. So they're very useful in that regard. You know, you can just find a, an empty room somewhere and, and get some squats done and have something heavy in your arms, you know, a box of oranges. I don't know, but I find it really useful while I'm away as well. And there's a couple of other little probably, yeah, not as substantiated ways I use them. I actually incorporate them into recovery protocol which might sound a bit strange but i find using them passively as as almost like a bit of a a bit of a pump to reduce sort of leg inflammation and pain so that i can train again probably the next day i get quite a lot of vmo pain with the gym stuff that i do and it does really stop you from doing hard intervals so i've kind of incorporated it into my recovery protocol as well and i even if it's placebo i don't know but i feel like it helps me as well, for, as, well as, as you just mentioned, uh, the potentiation aspect, I find that I can sit there passively and pump them up and let them down for a minute and then pump them up. But usually three times, three sets of, three sets of two minutes. Uh, I usually go 140, 160, 180. And then I get on the bike and I feel like I'm already somewhat ready to go and, and potentiated. I can also, I also in a, in a warm up for an event, would use them with some activation exercises like some glute bridges, lunges, those kinds of things. So I find them very useful. I guess I have a pretty holistic approach to, to using the cuffs, but I found them a super useful training tool for me. I've never had the need to use them for injury or anything like that and getting back to strength from, from injury, but I have recommended them. I know of a female track cyclist, she's a starter in the, in the team sprint and that's a very sort of high power role. It's a, it's a 19 second effort on a slow day. So they're always very focused on keeping on size and power and, and all that kind of stuff. And this particular girl was in for a hip arthroscope as well as having a labrador and her adductors lengthened. So yeah, she was in a, in a spot of bother and I... I just said, look, take my cuffs for as long as you need them and, and, and just give them a try. And she ran it by her SNC coach over there and he was happy for her to use them. So she uh, used them for leg press and knee extension. And for both exercises, she would do four sets of 10 to, 10 to 15. It helped her keep on her size. Again, we don't have any DEXs to say what kind of size she kept, but just the fact that she was able to train instead of sitting on the couch has both physical and and mental benefits getting you closer to where you were before you had the problem. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I try and actually say in all these podcasts and every time I'm talking to someone is that everyone loves the science to say, well, what was your pre, what was your post measurement? And look, you know, I think as we said earlier in our preamble that even if it's placebo, sometimes I actually think as a coach, who cares? Like, Mm. she's working but like i do know in terms of it decreases pain so you know going back to your second point about that recovery process so i'm assuming you did that passively as well just sitting there that's just passively like i'll do some 
mobility and some stretches and get into some trigger points and the sore spots and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end, I'll just sit there, I don't know, in front of the TV or something and yeah, have a few pumps. Nice. So what, what will happen there is just to try and give you some mechanisms and science to show you that there's actually some science behind that. There's a few things happening, obviously, as you're constricting and then releasing, you have that vasodilation. So it's that pump mechanism of recovery. And that's what we try and do with recovery boots and so forth. And then also it's been shown to decrease pain. Uh, in joints and tendons. And I can attest to that as well. You just put it on for some reason, it just feels better. And some of that could be that vasodilation. And in terms of, I guess, the soreness and, and so forth, there's a paper that's actually been released about using it passively. Basically, there's just different pathways, which when you have inflammation, you know, you have these pathways which actually need to come in and get rid of the inflammation. And then you have these other um, pathways which activate the increase or the repair and the growth. What you're actually doing is activating these pathways mm. where you've had a hard session, you need some form of repair of your musculature. And it's not huge, it's not like you've torn a hamstring, but you have some sort of muscle damage due to your high load training. Like I would assume that some of your sessions are just unbelievably intense. It's kind of like doing a hard strength session, would I be right? Yeah, so we're pushing huge gears now on the track. So sessions even that are somewhat aerobic have a huge anaerobic strength component. It's like being in the gym, but you're just pushing up and down on a bike essentially to keep it super, super specific to the event. So those kinds of sessions, they just tear the muscles up. And if you can use the cuffs or something like that as a recovery tool as well, then you're at a bit of advantage. I think even when you mentioned it before, I'm thinking rugby teams as well. I'm thinking the day after play when everyone's out jumping in the ocean, they could be trying these cuffs as well as a recovery method. Yeah, definitely. And, and you don't even talk about, you know, floss banding where you have that big band, you tighten it up. That's a form of occlusion as well. So you're tightening up a limb, you're getting some movement through the area, you're releasing it, then all of a sudden pain decreases and so forth. So there's in, in other modes, there's occlusion happening. And I keep on these podcasts, I keep saying, I think it'd be fantastic in rugby because you, you know, midweek when you've got one session to have a lift, you know, rather than doing, you know, 90 to 100% of one RM to maintain their strength and size, you could just dull it down to 70% or 75% of RM, which is still for those guys, a large load, put yeah. the cuffs on, decrease pain, increase hormonal activation and muscle activation as well without putting that extra 10 kilos on the spine. Yeah. And, you know, going further like that, that traveling stuff. So I keep hinting to this on the, on the podcast. So I'm waiting for a large order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and I think, like you said there, a midweek lift for those guys, you're also reducing the chance of them having sore muscles on, on game day. So I think it's definitely worth a shot. It's just about, you know, it's like anything. It's just about getting it out there. It's like every new idea, people are first un, un, little, can be a little bit unsure. It's just, it's the same, same with anything. But I think, yeah, you'll see a, a big rise in big teams using, using it in, in the future. I can, yeah, I I can't guarantee anything, but I could say that it's. I'd see it he heading in that direction for sure. Well, hopefully they're buying my cuff. So if that's that's all happens, I'll give you a cut of the commission. Hey? <laughs> yeah, cheers. That, every little bit helps, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, to sum up, my experience with the cuffs has been awesome. I've been really, really happy with them. When you mentioned some 70% lifts with them on, I still do some quite heavy lifts with them on as well, just uh, as a bit of variety. So, But the, the main thing I've been really happy with is the ability to keep some size on in a sport where we still have such a heavy aerobic component. 
And just quickly touching on the lifts, what kind of lifts you alluded to a couple of them and just for everyone out there, what kind of set ranges and rep ranges are you looking at? So with the BFR stuff on, if I'm doing like a, a knee extension hamstring curl sort of superset with with maybe uh, a pull-off press in the middle, I'm probably looking at, at 3 to 10 because I'm purely using it to try and maintain some size. And I find, yeah, even at 10 reps with the cuffs on, you, you are up to the third one, you get a you get a bit of sting, like that. that's for sure. The other superset I'd use towards the end of a session kind of varies. I'd do like a, a split leg squat with up to 70, 70 to 80 kilos on the bar for, for six reps. And for me, with cuffs on, that's substantial. That's a substantial lift for me. And I find, yeah, I don't, I don't get any blocked range of movement or anything with them on. I'm still able to lift lift quite heavy with them on and then I'd usually supplement that with calf raises because you've got to find somewhere in every session to get some some calf raises in so usually a superset of that and then maybe a little core exercise as well I've done a bit of work in in the trap bar with them on um haven't done too much leg press with them on but definitely some trap bar work and I find that yeah I'm able to operate at that 70 70 to 80 percent and can't really push it much past that yeah i'm still able to do sort of heavy lifts with them but i i guess i'd probably use them mostly in the 50 to 50 to 70 percent range yeah 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 and look i think from an elite athlete point of view you need higher intensities 20 to 30 percent is lovely if you're coming back from an injury but at the end of the day you need intensity going through your body and and you need to be pushing that which maybe actually just think about the cycling enthusiasts out there. You know, you're doing squats, you're doing all the big exercises really well, squats, trap bar, deadlifts, split squats and so forth. Could you give two or three of your favorite exercises you think are perhaps neglected that people should look at doing? So for example, you started talking about calf raises, which may not appear on most people's strength training programs. So two or three little, little magical ones that yeah. are neglected. For sure. I think the calf raise is important because people, especially in cycling, neglect the calf raise, but because they think in the pedal stroke, you're not using the calf, but you, you most certainly are, especially in the, from the bottom of the pedal stroke where you start pulling up. So any, any advantage you can have at the bottom of the stroke, which is a dead point in the pedal stroke is super important. And that's why calf raises are important. I know like it's not really a muscle you can put heaps of size on or anything like that, but if they're strong and they can last a long time, you're going to get a huge benefit out of it. One of the, one exercise that would definitely get neglected are, are like your seated rows or your pull to wires and stuff like that as well. You get a bit of a hunchback sort of stance being a cyclist and corrective exercises like that are super important. And I think probably once athletes are ready for it, a single leg squat, like rear foot elevated squat, where you're focusing on stabilizing and getting good range of movement. You're able to stretch the hips out while you're doing it as well, which is a really problem area for cyclists. So yeah, a couple of dumbbells in the hand, rear foot elevated on the on the bench and single leg squats like that. I think that's probably, yeah, the money the money maker that exercise. That's fascinating. Cause I think that has real value because people will do the big rocks and then the little ones which have huge value which is actually you know just as important i still i did i did them today for instance the leg press was full so i was like right i'm just gonna i'm gonna do some 
dumbbell rufus rear foot elevated split squat and it's a fantastic exercise because i find when people squat you can often lose normal squat you can often lose focus because the bar itself can drag you down and you just have to push back up but this exercise is the exercise where you really have to focus to engage and get it right even though it looks like a simple one yeah next step to that which i've been doing with some of the athletes i work with is holding uh like a 10 kilo plate overhead yeah and that really elongates the whole system you know from the hips all the way through the thoracic yeah yeah it's a beautiful stretch that's more of a stretch than a big strength exercise but uh, that's really great so for me that uh, like i really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and and just telling myself and everyone out there how you're using it and literally i just applaud you when you're you are applying science at its best this is this is fascinating to listen to that these are the things that i i would recommend anyone out there to do so you know, you've got a few things going on at the moment. Um, and obviously you've got your coaching business and your Twitter and your Instagram. So just tell the listeners out there how they can get a hold of you and follow you and see what you're up to. Yeah, for sure. So I'm probably most active on Instagram and I'm not really, really super active. I mostly just look at, I, I follow a lot of strength and conditioning coaches and look what they have to say. Um, so, but at, on Instagram, you can just find me at Jordan Kirby, J-O-R-D-A-N-K-E-R-B-Y. Twitter's the same thing. I just follow sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches and give them the occasional like. And that's the same hub there. And then for people who want to look at the cycling coaching, you can just go to thepeddler.com.au and it'll give you a brief rundown of some of the things I do uh, with the coaching business. Yeah, not super, not super, super active, but I do need to work on that. But we've all got to find that time in the, in, in the day, you know. A lot of the stuff on my Instagram is actually my competitive side as well and some photos of my dog too. So nice. yeah, everyone loves a dog. <laughs> yeah, nice. And you're based out of Brisbane? So if anyone's in Brisbane, they can obviously come and see you. Do you do online coaching as well? Yeah, so predominantly I, I prescribe my programs through the platform Training Peaks online and then I just catch up with people over the phone or face-to-face during the week. So it's predominantly online platforms that you get your your program from and it's individualized to your own power zones and heart rate and all that kind of thing after we sit down and decide what we're actually training for because on the bike there's so many different things that you can train for that it has to be specific to what you're doing and that's that's really what I try to emphasize and I try to emphasize the communication as well because it's so important to me as a coach yeah so if any cycling enthusiasts out there who want to get some guidance from a world champion and all going well an Olympian uh, in a few years time follow him at Jordan Kirby or alternatively check him out on the peddler p-e-d-a-l-e-r.com.au once again thank you so much Jordan for coming on board no thank you Chris it's always good to catch up and I love learning things from you every time I speak to you oh thanks mate really appreciate it oh mate cheers And that's all today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Cavillio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump. (laughs) 